we've been piloting a methodology for using virtual desktops out into getting them out of the classroom and into the hands of people at home or any other place that has internet, those successes are being noticed. Welcome to the CIO Exchange Podcast. I'm Eudine Porter de Leon. This is another special episode recorded via conference call during the COVID-19 crisis, in which most people have still been ordered to shelter in place. With universities forced to close their classroom doors until the health crisis subsides, remote learning has been the only option for ensuring that students can finish their degrees, in which they've invested a great deal of time and money. This new reality presents a major challenge for traditional education delivery methods and has caught both educators and students off guard. It does, however, offer the technology leaders at the institutions of higher education an opportunity to greatly accelerate the transition of educators into a new era of online and remote learning. In this episode, I have a conversation with Patrick Turner, CIO of Schoolcraft College, a Michigan-based institution that has been leveraging technology to solve the challenges that have emerged from this crisis, from connecting students to teachers performing experiments in the labs, to ensuring that the administrators can perform the jobs they need to do to keep the school running. Pat, I know a lot of things have had to happen within the educational industry, and various institutions, both large and small, have had to react in different ways. I wanted to get your take just off the top. What do you think has been sort of the greatest challenge that is kind of facing you? Maybe ones you saw, maybe ones you didn't see. What's been your experience so far? Up until this point, I characterized my biggest challenge with a little bit of a story. And if you'll bear with me for a second, there's a well-known lumberjack who is a recluse. And he emerges one day from the wilderness and he goes into the general store and says, I need one of them newfangled chainsaw things. And he sets down his axe and walks back into the forest And a week later, he emerges and the chainsaw is worse for wear. And he walks in and he goes, I could cut 10 times as much wood with my axe. This thing is just a piece of junk. And the store manager picks up the chainsaw and starts it and roars to life. And the lumberjack goes, what's that noise? (laughs) And that, in a silly story, characterizes my biggest challenge. And that's people just don't understand how to use the tools that they have access to. And the resistance to the transition to online is I'm in a position where I'm trying to pull those ones that have resisted that move to the digital warrior environment and now are struggling to be successful in a required environment that they're so unfamiliar with. And the technology has really taken quantum leaps in terms of its ease of use. But still, we have this conversation on campus all the time. I can put the most capable technology, the latest and greatest modes of doing teaching and learning. And if the technology is not used, then it just doesn't matter. So getting people acclimated, getting technology accessible, and having the end user community kind of pull their own weight and take the time to become acclimated in this new environment. The technology part itself is difficult enough. And don't get me wrong, there's challenges there, but that's the biggest challenge for me. I'm glad you started with the story because that's kind of what people need. And they need that story. And when someone's handed a piece of technology and said, hey, this is a great piece of technology, it's going to do great for yada, yada, yada. Usually people think like, okay, well, this is going to make the life of the CFO easier or maybe the life of some other department easier, but it's not going to make my life easier. It's really more work for me right now. And I think maybe they just haven't been told that story. Maybe you need to go in with the chainsaw and you need to start it up and they just say, hey, wow, that actually might be better than this ax that I'm using. Exactly. Yeah, and that's, I run into that all the time. And I can't tell you how many times 
I've been teaching for 30 years and it's works this well so far. Why should I pick up this thing or, or learn this new methodology? And then you see the ones that we call our super users, the ones that are out there on the bleeding edge and they're doing amazing things. And what's really interesting, I'm actually in a doctorate program right now. I took a class that was entitled teaching and learning. And so I got the opportunity to go in and watch some of our better faculty do what they do. And the ones that engage the students where they live, I mean, I have three 20-somethings and they live with that piece of technology attached to the end of their arm. And the faculty that can meet the students on a level playing field technologically are the ones that are winning the hearts and minds. I like that you brought it that way that because it is you really need to meet them on that technology playing field. That's where they are. That's how they communicate. That's where the habits, that's where people are. It's like people always talk about like when you want to communicate with someone, you're going to reach people, you have to find out where they are and you find out how to communicate with them. And if you're not making that effort, then you're not actually going to be able to truly engage, build trust and build those relationships. There's a ton of what you just said, Pat, that fascinates me. But before I dive into some of the threads I want to pull on Herb, I want to get your perspective on the situation. Give me a sense of where you're feeling like we need to really focus on when we're having this conversation. Pat brought up a few points. I'm wondering if there's something that you want to bring in at this point so we can kind of start to move in that direction. I agree with Pat. The idea that an educator who has been teaching a class for 10 years or 20 years doing it the same way, now we're trying to move into a blended classroom, flipped classroom style, basically the classroom being the point of discussion and debate and guided practice rather than lecture style. We have to have educators actually familiar with instructional design that actually can do flipped classroom. So it's a big challenge for the educators. For the students, I don't know if it's a major shift because they've been living online for so long. For the instructors and for are the administration now moving into everything being remote and online, it is a major shift and a challenge that IT actually has to support and figure out how best to meet the needs. Pat, you brought up a couple people that really need to kind of step up, for lack of a better term, but it seems like it's really the sentiment that are individuals who have the technology at their fingertips. Because like you said, you can talk about, well, how virtualization, how remote desktop, how all these different sort of pieces of technology can enable a remote learning experience. But if there's not a willingness for individuals to actually embrace the new tools that they have at their disposal they're just going to be cutting trees with axes instead of chainsaws. And just so any of the listeners out there just realize it's just, we're not advocating bringing chainsaws into classrooms. Um, it's just a metaphor. Uh, and we want to make sure that that's, that's held clear. What do you think sort of those steps, and I'll put this to both you, Pat and Herb, both to kind of to weigh in on, what do you think needs to be the technologies put in place? How do you feel like you can bridge that gap between the way in which the students want to engage and work and the way in which the teachers need to engage and work and where those gaps are to get them to that place? Yeah, I think it's an old story. I think you have to have some quick wins. You have to find those few that are willing to embrace the technology and make them into evangelists for the rest of the community. That's what I saw. I've run into many, many times over my career the sentiment that the IT people just cram something down into the classroom and expect us to use it when we know better about teaching. And to a, a large extent, they're absolutely right. So 
I think that the will to embrace these new methods and technologies have to come with inside the academic environment. So that's really kind of the tack that I've been taking for the last couple of years is to try to support and promote those that are embracing the technology, are interested in using the two new methods and techniques. So we've been piloting a methodology for using virtual desktops out into getting them out of the classroom and into the hands of people at home or at a Starbucks or any other place that has internet, those successes are being noticed. And so it started in a few classes in CIS. And then all of a sudden we got the CGT people interested. And now the electronics folks. Just recently, we stuck proper drivers into our scanning electron microscope so students could watch what was being displayed on the screens in the lab remotely. That's going to really initiate the change that needs to be very pervasive if this work from home, stay safe, stay home methodology is going to work. From my standpoint, I've seen some technology gaps in the idea that we can go ahead and have instructors and educators put the class online, but does it give the same classroom feel? Exactly. That's a really important topic. What are you feeling like that? How that changes the value of the educational experience? That's a really great question. I'll tell you about an experience I had. I went into an accounting class of all things, and there was an instructor in there, and she immediately walks in the class and she says, we're going to vote my proxy shares of Walt Disney. So she brings up a website and the one guy goes, oh, I don't want this guy. He's a, he's a friend of Eisner. And what happened is there's this concept in academics called deep learning. And the first premise of deep learning is you have to get the students to care about the content. And the use of technology, being able to pull up websites, being able to do whiteboarding over top of digital content, being able to mirror cast and bring students' homework from their personal device up into the main display, controlling technology from tablets and walking in amongst the students so you're no longer the sage on the stage, but you're the guide by the side. These are the methodologies that only come with practice and the use of the technology. And when you see an instructor that can start to get students so engaged through some silly polling software where there's competitions for during quizzing that they're cheering for each other and they're engaged and they're talking about the differences between their approach and other people's approaches, that's what's really going to change our ability to make use of these tools. When they don't become the centerpiece of what's happening in the classroom, but they become the enabler. And that's really the transition that only the faculty can do by absorbing and understanding these technologies and then using them to accentuate the types of tools and methods that they have already used for years and years. I think it's profound. And I think that point can't be underscored enough because just like a doctor is there to heal, you want to get technology not in between the patient and the doctors. Like you don't want the technology in between the student and the teacher. The teachers are there to teach. They're there to be empathetic. They're there to build excitement and engagement. And how does technology enable that? Herb, I think it's great that you brought that up because it changes when you have, let's say, a teacher or an educational institution that doesn't put education or technology first in this remote learning or wasn't prepared for this. Now you've shifted that to, okay, we're just going to take what value we're trying to deliver in person to a value that we're trying to deliver remotely, but we don't have people to Pat's point that actually have a sort of a native understanding, a habits built, the skills built to leverage that, to enable themselves to transmit that empathy and that talent that they have then now you have a different value prop. You have people who don't know how to use the tools, who 
who are trying to deliver something that they are good at delivering in person, but are really not good at delivering remotely. And so I want to make sure you finish your thought, Herb, how do you feel like that shifts the value of that educational experience? Well, I think it changes it completely. People select universities based upon sometimes brand, sometimes reputation, sometimes they are the best in the field. But as when the entire course is online, what is the differentiator between university systems? And so I see that better collaboration with the other students and use of technology will be the differentiator that is the swayer for a student to go to one particular facility versus the other. So I'm thinking collaboration is the biggest part that I see, along with, I think Pat just touched on it, and that is a lot of the times coursework is augmented by labs, and you have to be able to get at those labs from any device from any location. Otherwise, it kind of loses its impact on that coursework and the curriculum. So I see virtual labs being an important part, collaboration along with a basically an online learning management environment along with good instructional design be the differentiators. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, I think there's a lot of innovations going on with regard to labs where things become more of a demonstration. And even in our automotive labs, allowing students to use their smartphones to record tasks that they do on their own vehicles. We also have welding simulators where, now this does take a little bit of peripheral tools, but where very realistic simulations can be done in a virtual environment to teach technique, hand movements, gain that kind of tactile memory, if you will, to do various things. So there's a lot of interesting manners in which this kind of remote learning can be instantiated. I like a lot of the stories that you had, Pat, because it gets really specific and it gets to that sort of the human element of how that technology is enabling people in the lab for others to be able to see what they're seeing, people in the shop to be able to see what they're doing. Could you give us a sense of what were you doing sort of pre-pandemic, pre-remote learning sort of crisis to start enabling that? You had some really good ideas about, well, this is how we need to prepare. This is how we need to enable before this crisis even hit. And how did that change the way that you were able to transition? Because that transition period, I think, is really fascinating. How was that preparation beforehand helped with that transition? And how, how bumpy or how smooth was that? So sure. So there's been a lot of motivators to increase or aid accessibility of higher education. So enrollment in higher education has been declining. The baby boomers are getting older. So the demographics of the common student is also aging. You have a lot more of single parent or work from home kind of folks. They can't afford the equipment necessary or they just don't have the time to come on campus. So how do you bring that rich experience that you can have in a $2,500 or $3,000 PC and a computer lab to the desktop or the smart device of somebody that just got home from their day job and really want to better their lives? Well, virtual technology and being able to have the heavy lifting happening in my data center with hosts that have powerful GPUs and lots of processor where I can teach a CAD class and the end user device can be a Chromebook or a tablet or even a smartphone. It really expands the accessibility of some of those classes that really either require a very high level of personal hardware investment or requirement to come on campus. And so the technology at that point becomes an equalizer. We can deliver courses in a new and different way to a broader population of students. So that's part of it. The other part was just to make sure 
from a capacity standpoint, when you put something out there online, how do you restrict it to students that are enrolled in a class? And that was a piece that, believe it or not, in higher education was not a trivial exercise because in most cases, when you walk into a on-premise computer lab, you sit down at a workstation and you're user one through 24. Mm -hmm. So that class has no idea that Pat Turner is enrolled in an AutoCAD class. Well, so we had to create that process where when you logged into the virtual environment, it knew what classes that you were enrolled in and it knew what desktops you were entitled to. So I might have a CAD class, I might have an Adobe Creative Cloud class and have different desktops. So providing that access logistically outside of the on-premise classroom was also needed. So these are things that we've been working on and working out for the last several years. And it really shows its value now in this pivot to distance learning where some of those classes where we would just stop have to, having to offer them because the student did not have the technology needed to, to be engaged in them, that factor has just been removed from the equation. There's so many things in there that I want to focus on, but one of the big ones that you mentioned, I'm glad you mentioned it, is context and understanding what student has access to what. Because I think a lot of what you don't hear people talking about is that most of what we do, and this has been brought to light under the current pandemic, most of what we do, whether it's an educational institution, whether it's a business, is really a sort of a series of institutional hacks. And you don't have like a business continuity plan. You have a series of hacks like, oh, if this problem happens online with your registration, I just come in and there's a printout and you check a box and then someone hands that piece of paper to someone else who presses another button somewhere. And it's always sort of just worked out. And people haven't questioned it because it's always the way that it's been done. That cannot be understated under the current circumstances because some of the things that you prepared for, Pat, allowed you to not have to rely on those institutional hacks in order for a student to get from point A to point B and accomplish what you mentioned before, like just offering a class as simple as, hey, we just simply can't offer this class because we don't have the context. But in your case, there's preparations that you made in order to be able to say, no, we can still offer the class because we've put these pieces in place because we haven't relied on those institutional hacks. Right. I had one professor that when I was trying to gauge interest from a faculty standpoint, they told me that he stopped teaching a database management system class because he spent most of his time trying to help students get the software installed on their personal devices than actually teaching the class. <laughs> well, when the student, all they have to do is bring up a virtual desktop, the environment is completely there. It's run and optimized to run in my data center. That removed that drain on his time completely. So now he's offering that class again. So the things that get better by being able to provide access to computing resources kind of in a ubiquitous manner are just endless. I have made the statement on stage before where what we're talking about here today, this remote access to virtual computing will revolutionize the course delivery methodology in higher education. And we just have to get folks to embrace it and understand the little nuances that are necessary to maintain that pedagogical connection and student engagement, but it absolutely can be a new day. And I'm so excited about being part of it at Schoolcraft. And it's that getting faculty to spend the time to understand the tool. And then the sky's the limit as far as I'm concerned. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you a question. You talked about VDI and instructional. We talked about instructional design and collaboration. Here's a question. You brought it up with the welding simulation. And we've always talked about AR and VR as really training aids to help, help students actually understand the course material. Has there been discussion at Schoolcraft about increasing the virtual reality or augmented reality training to actually give them simulations? I would say the answer to that question is not very much. We're still trying to get over that hump of getting faculty to engage online learning. Schoolcraft delivers more online or distance learning classes than any other community college in Michigan, but there's still a tremendous amount of face-to-face classes that happen and trying to get faculty to be able to not care as to what mode the class is being taught in is the, the biggest challenge. Getting them to embrace the virtual desktop technology. Now, in terms of conversations with my staff, the Microsoft, I think it's called the Lens Virtual Reality. I mean, I've seen demonstrations of that where students can get up and walk in and amongst 3D models. I actually saw a simulation where it was an accident scene. It was a paramedic training class. And basically, you put on these Microsoft glasses and you can walk in to the accident scene. Cars are zipping by behind you, the patient's on the ground, and you're asked to palpate a pulse. You interact with the virtual environment, and it's got little heads-up display windows that are explaining to you how to improve your technique and things like that. To me, that is just demonstrative because when you think about that, there's no reason why that student couldn't be at home. They didn't have to be in an auditorium at a convention. And the technology, like the virtual reality and augmented reality glasses, the cost of those are getting to the point where they're very approachable. They're very accessible. It's now to the creative nature of faculty and instructional designers to start packaging some of these lab-related classes in that manner. So yeah, I'm very excited about it. Do I think that it has arrived yet? I think we have to engage faculty and get them to be less afraid of the technology. There's a big lift there for them to go from standing in front of a class and talking to a PowerPoint to being able to develop and utilize content that is meant for the virtual environment. And they're being forced now to kind of confront a lot of those things. So at the top, we were talking about how the people problem, like you said, this is an old story where you just need to get people involved, you need to find champions, you need to get momentum, you need early wins. But do you think now this has really accelerated the process of people embracing that, people building the habits because they're forced to, they have no choice. So remote learning is no longer a choice. It's a necessity. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's forcing people to think about it. They no longer have any choice. And what I'm seeing is it's, I didn't know this. This is amazing. (laughs) It's that amazing. We're just like, I know it. It's like, it's been here for years. How could you not know? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And now that they have seen it and they realize the value of it, it's how do they deal with the fact that they're coming from so far behind and they're panicked about teaching the class for the next term in this new unfamiliar environment for them to even spend the time to go and investigate the extents to which the technology can help them do what they do better. That is the challenge. One of the other things that is the bane of my existence is I I can't tell you how many times I've heard the phrase, I'm too busy to be trained. Yeah, that's, yeah, I'm too busy. And to me, that's the, that's it. That's the death blow. You have a choice now. 
Yeah, I was just heard a story just the other day where a guy says, well, we should increase our professional development and get a lot more training. And the person said, well, what happens if we train all these people and they leave? He goes, well, what do you think's worse if that happens or if we don't train them and they stay? Yes, that's why yeah, I, I love that. I love that, that saying, so yeah. if you don't train them and they stay. That's a bigger question too. Do you think some, and this is sort of in the industry at large, you think some are resistant saying, you know what, this is just going to be for a few months, maybe one more term. I'll get my teaching assistant, my TA to kind of pick up the slack and then I can go back to the way it was before. Or do you think about, and then 80, 90% of people are just going to change, this change is going to stay and there's going to be some tools they're going to get hooked on and it's never going to go back to the same way it was. Administrations in colleges are also realizing that it's never going to go back to the way that it was. From a distance learning standpoint, we're realizing how much of our faculty are not even had introductory training with the tools or are not certified. So one of the steps that we were taking, I'm not sure if it was completely carried out, but if you were not certified in the LMS, you could not teach a class the next term. And I think that seems a bit harsh, but not doing that is a recipe for failure. You have to give faculty a fighting chance to be successful in this new paradigm. And that sometimes means dragging them kicking and screaming into an understanding of these tools. I think the, the changing in standards of skills, actually, I think that's a profound shift. Whereas before it was one of those nice to haves. Now it's no, is part of your duties as faculty. Now you have to be able to deliver in this way. Yeah, this is going to impact faculty union negotiations all over the nation. It just is because this is the new reality. Pat, I was wondering if I could ask another question dealing with what I've been talking with university CIOs about around the country is them planning for different scenarios. On the ends of the continuum, you have open, wide open like it has been in the past, and then the other continuum is closed. And now they're trying to do planning going, what happens if we can open, but we have to require social distancing in our cafeterias, in our housing, in our student services, and in the education lecture halls? How do we actually go from cramped classrooms where we have 20 students now to having 10 students due to social distancing, or to how do we schedule larger classrooms? How has uh, Schoolcraft actually been dealing with the scenario planning around student services and scheduling? and things like athletics. Yeah, obviously moving as much of it to online as we possibly can, but in those scenarios where we have a a large contingency of students that want to go back to -to face-to-face classes. And so there's just an enormous level of details that you have to consider. I was talking today about one of the things that we are dealing with is accessibility. And so a lot of students don't have either computers and more critically, they don't have access to internet. So we've had discussions about how do we get internet out into the parking lots? Can't open our buildings because we don't have the logistics all figured out with regard to social distancing, but we need students to be able to have access to the network so that they can do their classes. So there's that whole thing. And then even I've been asked to open a computer lab where when we can reopen buildings, how do we do that such that a student that doesn't have access to the internet or a computer can come into our campus and safely engage in synchronous learning. It's everything from, okay, the social distancing part, how many students can you have in a classroom? How do you clean computers between uses? We've started talking about, well, if you do too much cleaning, you're going to wipe the letters off the keyboards, or you have issues with regard to liquid damage on equipment. Then you have people that have sensitivities to cleaning agents, smells, and contact. 
And the list just goes on and on and on of the things that need to be considered. But you know what? We'll figure it out because we have to. And so are we preparing to have students return to class? Absolutely. And what we're trying to do is doing that in a broad enough manner such that whatever the scenario comes, we'll be able to react. And the very first and foremost thing is keeping people safe, right? And when when you start there, then the brainstorming can begin and the methods and processes and communications can start to be put together and put in place to be able to get that done. I think that's a phenomenal perspective, Pat. And I think you provided some really good guidance and I think it was a great conversation. I want to thank you, Pat and her, both of you for joining the CIO Exchange podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the CIO Exchange podcast. For more conversations with technology leaders from around the world, consider subscribing to this podcast. And to get video perspectives and deep research, visit vmware.com slash CIO.